Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. <laughs> Are you just trying to throw me off my game today? Is that the maybe, plan? Maybe, maybe, yeah. I'm Brenna. There, there, <laughs> I did it with no panache. Fantastic. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the tecumseh territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmagulu. And today's text, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, is set in Mile City, Montana, the traditional lands of the Crow, Amskapi-Pikani, Cheyenne, and Ochichisakowin peoples. Oh, well done. Thanks. I practiced. Joe, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't talk to you about this off the top, but I just realized that I kind of, can I take a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, this is our first episode that we've recorded since some news broke in the territory where I live that's been pretty Mm -hmm. huge everywhere. And I kind of feel like I want to address it. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So um, you've probably seen on Twitter and in other news, the phrase to come loops taste which maybe depending on where you live in the world, you only ever hear on this show. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty disturbing and uh, horrifying mm, discovery is the wrong word because people from the Swetmick Nation have been telling people for generations that there were children buried on the grounds of the residential school here in Kamloops. Mm-hmm. But that was confirmed by ways of knowing that white people listen to, I guess, this week. And the news is really shocking and really horrifying. And I just wanted to recognize, as I've been doing when I talk from this space, that um, the very name of the territory I come from may be triggering or upsetting to some folks. So, Joe, I'm going to send you the link to a crisis line that you could include in the show notes for me. And I'll say that if Indigenous listeners are looking for someone to talk to about this, that's a good number to call. And Settler listeners might also follow the link and use the donation button to support the work that that organization is doing to support people through this really awful time. Oh, good call. Yes. And you know what? I will pledge to give money to that on behalf of the show. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. I support them monthly now because they provide ongoing counseling and therapy to survivors and the families of survivors of residential schools at no cost. It's a really expensive thing to manage. And so um, they can use our support for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, sort of tangential, but appropriate that we're also talking about a text that does include Indigenous representation this week. So I was happy to have that reminder and be able to process my own feelings. I don't know about you, Brenna, but sometimes as a Canadian, I like to think that I'm better than our neighbors to the Mm. south. Mm. And then events like this occur, and I'm reminded that we are colonial settlers, and we have horribly abused the Native people in our fictitiously made-up country. Like, it makes me very disappointed to be a Canadian when these kinds of things come to light and the fact that this is not that long ago like people want to say that this was stuff that happened in the past and then you hear that this is a establishment that didn't shutter its doors all that long ago and yeah we just we have a responsibility to acknowledge that this was an atrocity that happened and also that we need to do better and also we need to educate people so that this doesn't happen again 
This residential school in particular was in operation until the late 1970s, but residential schools in Canada were in operation until 1996. So Mm -hmm. this is in not just living memory, but like our living memory as hosts of this show. So yeah, I think it's it's important and I definitely think we're going to talk about it a little bit today on the show because the visual iconography of the way Adam is represented at some moments is mm-hmm. very reminiscent of images yep. that we see frequently of residential schools. So I did also want to say that off the top, that if you're feeling a little bit tender about some of these issues today, just a heads mm-hmm. up that that is going to come up in our discussion. Yes, yeah, because uh, let's be honest, Promise Land Camp is not that far away from what a residential school is. No, absolutely not. So yeah, I guess we should we should talk about the book. Thanks for uh, giving me that time, Joe. I appreciate it. It's a platform worth giving. So we did read The Miseducation of Cameron Post uh, today by Emily Danforth and watched the film as well. I really enjoyed and was moved by the book um i definitely cried at the end (laughs) and i think the film is really beautiful i found it maybe a little bit less emotionally emotionally impactful but that sometimes just happens because i read the book first but yeah i guess i'll get started with the plot and then we can jump into our discussion sound good sounds good okay so our protagonist is named cameron post and if you've only seen the film you won't know that there's like about 250 pages of lifetime backstory before we get to God's <laughs> promise. This is true. And I actually really enjoyed it. Normally when we have a long setup like this, I find it a little tedious, but uh, Danforth is a really good writer. Yeah. I was really sucked in to learning Cameron's story. Uh, right off the top, Cameron and her friend are kind of, they're, they're fooling around, they're testing out kissing and slightly more than kissing. It's more like innocent exploration than anything sort of deeply disturbing. But on a night when they've gone sort of farther than they ever had before, she's sleeping over at her friend's house and Cameron gets a phone call and she's whisked back to her home where her grandmother's waiting for her because her two parents have been killed in a car accident. And thus begins the layering in this story of sexual identity and trauma for Cameron. (laughs) And this will basically continue. Um, Cameron ends up being raised uh, by her grandmother, but primarily by her Aunt Ruth. And Aunt Ruth is a born-again Christian with lots of ideas about what proper ladylike behavior is. (laughs) Cameron embarks in a series of relationships, some healthier than others. Um, I think probably the best relationship for her, at least when it's happening live, is the other swimmer. Cameron's a swimmer, and she starts sort of seeing and making out with another girl from a a rival swim team. And what that girl really offers her, in addition to the kissing, um, is (laughs) that she's from the city, and she has sort of a broader view she lords it over Cameron in a way that as a kid who grew up in a small town I could totally relate to oh my goodness it gets a little frustrating at times doesn't it where you're just like okay take it down a notch big city girl (laughs) I've totally been Cameron in that situation and it's a lot (laughs) but she also provides a bit of a lifeline as the narrative progresses and gives Cameron somewhere to talk about her feelings because In Miles City, Montana, Cameron doesn't believe there's anyone she can talk to about her queerness. She doesn't really even consider it like a part of her identity. It's just sort of like Mm -hmm. this thing that's kind of happening. And as a result, she's easily led around by other young women, for sure. Right. We should probably also note that 
She not only doesn't self-identify as a lesbian or queer, she worries that there is a tie between Mm -hmm. her parents' death and her sexual identity. So it's not that she's necessarily ashamed of it, but she often associates whether her parents would be happy or love her Mm -hmm. if they had have survived the car accident because it happened at such a focal point in her life. And it's interesting because even before Ruth and Ruth's focus on God and a particularly sort of punitive form of Christianity, even before that enters her life, she already kind of has this question like, is God punishing me for kissing my friend by killing my parents? Like, Which is totally like a – normal is the wrong word because you should get your kid therapy if they're saying things like that. But Mm -hmm. I think developmentally appropriate conclusion to draw – Oh, yeah, it rings true. And so that's already echoing in her head when Ruth arrives and they start attending this evangelical church. Yeah. So the real turning point is her friendship with Coley, who is this popular and beautiful and fascinating young woman who at first Cameron just wants to be best friends with, um, mm-hmm. but eventually begins to feel something more. And they they do like fool around, they kiss and they fool around sexually. And Cameron is really... Coley sends her mixed messages like, oh, for sure. Holy God. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And when push comes to shove, Coley is discovered by her older brother, or they get out of her what she's been up to with Cameron. And Coley throws her under the bus. Yeah, I was going to say she confesses, but you're right. That's not the word. She throws Cameron under the bus. She basically says that Cameron uh, like took advantage of her and pressured her, and Mm -hmm. she's been tainted by the horrors that are Cameron. And so, yeah, Yeah. Cameron's aunt up and packs her off to God's Promise, a conversion Mm -hmm. school for teenagers. It should just be noted before we move too much further. I mean, you you might address it when Coley's letter arrives mm-hmm. at God's Promise, but I guess one of the big things that's important from a queer perspective is that there is a narrative in society mm-hmm. about predatory lesbians. Mm-hmm. So the idea that Coley not only turns against her, but actively tries to paint her as a predatory mm-hmm. lesbian really plays into societal fears about Like, if you are lesbian, it means that you are actively trying to go after vulnerable, susceptible women. And it's just, it's a big old bag of BS, Mm -hmm. of course. But I also think it's important we should acknowledge this book takes place in the early 90s. So this is very much like a narrative that was popular, more so at the time. Yes. And it's, you're right that it's really, really important. And it's also frustrating from a reader's perspective, because Coley is very much in the driver's seat of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which Cameron tries actually really hard to resist the feelings that she has emerging for Coley. And Coley's very curious and interested in experimenting. So it's all the more yeah. frustrating when Coley decides that that's the narrative she's going to spin, which is ultimately about saving herself and her mm-hmm. reputation in Miles City, Montana. Yeah. So off we go to God's Promise. Yeah. Where we meet other teens who are in the same situation as Cameron, uh, whose families have, for a varying slate of reasons, decided to try to change Ship their sexuality. Off. yeah, Ship them off and mess them up. And I think that this section is sort of really interesting. Like, we don't have time to talk about every single character, but it's almost like every single character you meet at God's Promise is worth talking about in some detail. Oh my because gosh. so many fascinating characters, yeah. Yeah, and Emily Danforth is really careful to give us a number of different 
queer narratives here, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying like, everyone's parents who are evangelicals will do this. And that's the only story here, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have Adam Red Eagle and we have Jane Fonda, and they both have these sort of very divergent backstories from anything you might expect. So um, Adam's father has decided to go into politics and finds that his son's two-spiritedness. Yeah, exactly. So his son is, well, he's Lakota. They're Lakota. And Adam is very connected to his mother's spirituality, including identifying himself as Wentke, which is the Lakota word for two-spirit. And uh, his father thinks that this is going to be disadvantageous to his political career, and so ships his son off to a conversion camp to, quote-unquote, fix him. But for Adam, this is also layered in the fact that not only is he being expected to reject his own sexual identity, but he's being expected to reject his spiritual identity as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then with Jane Fonda, we have a girl who was raised in like a hippie commune, not even quite sure who her biological dad is, raised by a series of cool people who just sort of like move in and out of her life until mm-hmm. such a time as her mom decides to remarry, remarries a conservative Christian man. And suddenly Jane's sort of free-spirited way of moving about the world is no longer convenient, and she also Mm -hmm. gets shipped off to this place. So these teens all have this sort of connecting thread of being basically like family refuse who are getting in the way or who are causing too much trouble. Oh, sure. It almost tells us more about the adults and how Mm -hmm. they don't want to deal with the quote-unquote problem. And as a result, it's the teens who will suffer. And ultimately... Cameron moves through periods at God's promise of trying to fall in line with the teachings and rejecting Mm -hmm. them wholesale until one of the disciples, they call them. One of the disciples. I'm sorry, I'm going to try to stop making that sound, but just there's so much in this. Not in the book itself, it's like it's in the ideology. Yeah, totally. One of the disciples uh, mutilates his genitals with a razor blade Mm -hmm. and then pours bleach in the wounds. Holy, yeah. One of the most horrifying mental images we've read yet in this entire podcast project. Mm -hmm. And God's promise ends up being investigated, but the investigator basically tells Cameron, like, there's nothing I can do. I'm here to investigate to make sure you guys get enough food. I'm not here to investigate, like, the mission of the place. And as Cameron points out, well, then you're not here to do anything useful because the mission of the place is abusive. And ultimately, Cameron and Adam and Jane realize that there's nothing that's going to get better in this place. And so they escape. They just sort of plan a hike and keep walking. The final scene is lovely. It's uh, the final Mm -hmm. scene has Cameron swimming in this like beautiful lake at night and sort of rejecting the kinds of feelings of rejection about her parents and Ruth and everyone else in her life and sort of allowing herself to be kind of reborn. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of unsatisfying because you don't know what happens next and the movie does it to you too, but but oh, no, good. I loved it. I that. loved it, but I also wanted to know more. What happens, no, Joe? Where are no. they going? It doesn't matter. That's the thing, <gasps> no, Brenda. It does. And I, I recognize it's going to be wholly unsatisfying to a lot of people. <laughs> I love this because there is no closure that could have been satisfying because these people, their lives are only now beginning. Like, to me, this entire book and the film to a lesser extent 
is the preamble to the real story, which is that these people now get to go and live for the first time because they actually know who they are and they refuse to be shut down or silenced by people who won't let them be authentic. I know intellectually that you're right and that narratively you are absolutely correct. And also, <laughs> you're I like, want to know where they're going and what happens to them. And actually, I will say, I didn't feel that way as much with the book. I felt that way really strongly with the movie. And I think it's because the swimming scene gives you a, a, does give you a sense of sort of internal closure yeah, that you don't get in the film. But I would absolutely read a sequel. I would absolutely read a sequel. Just FYI. <laughs> Emily Danforth, if you're listening. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a sequel. I actually wouldn't mind spinoffs from other characters. Oh, yeah. Because as much as I don't mind Cameron, and more so in the film, some of these supporting characters are just so rich, so interesting, so varied. I would love a spinoff with either Adam yes. or Jane Fonda. I was going to say Adam's story is the one that I would be most eager to hear, but even like Cameron's roommate, Aaron, Mark, the yeah. boy who harms himself, like yeah. all of these kids are, I just, there's something that really gets me on like my parent level mm -hmm. about when kids get scapegoated like this. The idea oh, sure. that like everything that's wrong with our family is the fact that you are gay and so I'm sending you away. Mm -hmm. And I just, uh, like my, I see like I'm welling up just thinking about it. It's such a it's such a horrifying breach of trust. It's a breach of the whole gig. Like it's, you don't actually get to just walk away from the gig like this. It's not how this works. And I just, mm -hmm. yeah, I would read about any of these young people. The whole thing is horrifying to me. The whole, I mean, obviously the whole concept of conversion camps is horrifying. The whole concept of conversion schools, the fact that they're not, they're still not even illegal in Canada. Like all of this is horrifying, but just on the personal level, the idea that you could do this to your own child if I think about it too hard, I will literally cry on the show, Joe. Uh, okay, well, that, let's move on. I am going <laughs> to gently correct you because I do believe that Justin Trudeau outlawed them since the time he has become prime minister. So I do believe they are illegal in Canada I don't now. think so. I don't think it's past the Senate. I don't think it's gone to final reading. Okay, so it's been introduced then, but it hasn't become law. That is what I believe. And I only know that because somebody had a thread about it for Pride last week. Woof, okay. Mm-hmm. So one thing to clarify is if anyone is listening has not picked up the book or not watched the film because you're afraid of being triggered by mm. it, because this topic, mm. especially for queer people, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but I think you've demonstrated, Brenna, that it's very upsetting to anyone with, you know, a heartbeat and <laughs> an iota of empathy. Yeah. The idea of sending children away to be cured of who they are is deeply upsetting, I want to clarify that this text actually handles it, it negotiates it in a very gentle way. It's upsetting. There's a lot of damaging things, but I expected this to be ostentatious and manipulative. And I'm happy to say that Emily Danforth and then the film's director and writer Desiree Akavan, as well as co-writer Cecilia Frugiel, probably mispronounced that, my apologies, all of these women have done an exceedingly good job at making it horrifying, but it's not a horror movie or a horror book in that regard. And I say this because I've seen another text, so we could do it for the show because it's technically a book and a film adaptation about a teenager, but like Boy Erased is oh, a yeah. counterpoint, which is horribly manipulative and really 
just dark and like we're let's do physical abuse let's do Mm -hmm. emotional abuse and all of that stuff and it seems deliberately made to be like look at how awful this is and it's like yeah no we didn't even need that because we already knew indeed part of what i think is so affecting about this book and the way it's written is well i mean it goes it goes back all the way to like the banality of evil and like the idea Mm -hmm. that what is most disturbing what is most upsetting is that no one here thinks that they're doing anything harmful right like yeah rick believes that he was cured of his gayness and that that was better for him lydia believes Mm -hmm. that she cured rick of his gayness out of love for him ruth believes that she is acting in the best interests of cameron it's actually more upsetting on a, or maybe maybe that's not the right phrase, but it's to me it's more impactful to see how deeply ordinary the people are mm-hmm. who are evoking this kind of harm. Like Lydia, she's fascinating. She's fascinating, right? And and she, nothing she does is I'm tra- picking my words carefully because I don't, I really don't want to misspeak. I, I was going to say that nothing she does is abusive that's not true the whole premise of the camp is emotionally abusive but nothing yeah but she's not beating anyone she's not starving them she's not locking them away like this isn't a prison camp no and that simultaneously makes it easier for her to get away with it and ultimately far more insidious because Mm -hmm. this line of thinking we know that this line of thinking doesn't just exist in conversion camps right it exists in families it exists in Public high schools, it exists in all kinds of places where you would hope that it didn't. It exists in the Boy Scouts, right? Yep. And I think that that makes it, for me, all the more disturbing because you can't really other Lydia. Like someone calls her a Disney villain and it's hilarious in the context of the book. Like it's a perfect, it's perfectly right on. But also Mm -hmm. she's not at all a Disney villain. Like she could live next door to you and you would Mm -hmm. not know what she did for a living. You know what I mean? Yeah, because she doesn't ever get that moment where she comes to Cameron and twirls her imaginary villain mustache and says, I've got plans for you, (laughs) lesbian girl. No. It's not that kind of book, right? She is killing these kids with a thousand paper cuts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there's a moment, it's almost more impactful in the film, where she shaves Adam's head. Oh my god. Okay, so that's the scene that to me, that visual... Like, the way that shot is shot, Mm -hmm. that is intended to evoke the history of, uh, I think they call them boarding schools in the U.S., but the history of the way Indigenous children have been treated by education in Mm -hmm. North America. Like, you could see a heritage minute. Like, the way it's shot, it's like, as she shaves his head and as he tries not to react, like, Mm -hmm. oh, and because that was, right? That was a practice. uh, Taking off the boy's hair in particular was a way of detaching them from their community and from their sense of spirituality in many cases. And so when you see Lydia doing that to Adam, and she's she's trying to do it because long hair is is feminine or a feat, right? That's what she's mm-hmm. she's addressing. But you can't not connect that to that larger history. And Lydia's ignorance of that evocation somehow makes it all the more powerful. Yes, and I think there's even more subtle pieces, like the fact that they are made to wear uniforms mm-hmm. so that they all become standardized and similar. Like, they look like dolls when they walk around in mm-hmm. their matching uniforms. And yeah, I, I really thought that this was going to be 
uncomfortable and horrifying. And instead, it's so nefarious, but Mm -hmm. under the surface, Mm -hmm. that it almost goes down easier because you can 100% understand why people would donate money to this or why they would applaud these children showing up in church every other week so that they could be, you know, scapegoat representatives of what the power of organized religion can accomplish. And once again, this is not a condemnation of organized religion, but it (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I want to acknowledge that people can have faith and they can have religion. It's when they begin to impose things like this about devaluing other human beings for things that they have no control over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, the 90s is an important context here because we were nowhere near where we are now. Like we are 25 years removed from the timeline of the book and the film. And it was a completely different world, right? Like 1993 is less than a decade out from the height of the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. These kids were all sinners and they were terrifying to quote unquote civilized society as a result. Well, and as a result, terrifying to themselves, right? One of the most difficult parts of it for me is watching a character like Aaron, who has so strongly internalized Mm -hmm. all of these beliefs and yet because she's human, can't help but act on the feelings that she has. And that one scene with Cameron where she oh. she she sort of like she makes a move on Cameron in the middle of the night and and then is immediately disgusted by herself. And you just see that level of harm. Mm-hmm. As Cameron says, like they're training us to hate ourselves. Yeah. And how deeply that goes for a character like Aaron, for me, that's so upsetting. Oh. And even the moment where Aaron says, you know, I want this to work for me. I want to have a husband and children and a family. And part of this is that there is no light at the end of the tunnel for someone like Aaron. You know, there's a reason that the saying, it gets better, Mm -hmm. became so popular. And it's because if someone like Aaron could only understand that she could have a wife and children if she could just hang on long enough. But that's... One of the scariest things about queer youth is that they don't have control over their own narratives because they they get their IDs taken away when they go to this camp. Mm-hmm. They don't have the control. They can't drive. So even if they wanted to steal that car, like they would immediately be picked up. They would become juvenile delinquents and their lives would be over. Mm-hmm. And that's where the horrifyingness of the story comes in. This camp is so innocuous. It's kind of like going away to a crappy camp for the summer. And yet the reason that Cameron and Adam and Jane Fonda ultimately decide they need to escape is not just because of what Mark does to himself, but also because they could be made to stay there indefinitely. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. The reason why Mark does that to himself, by the way, for context, right, is that you don't really get this sense in the film in nearly the same way. But in the book, Mark has been like the model I was going to say inmate, the model disciple. (laughs) He's done everything they've told him to. He's internalized every message. And yet when he writes to his father to ask if he can come home, his father says, no, you still Mm -hmm. come across as too effeminate to me. You're still too weak. I won't have your weakness in my home. Weakness. Yeah, weakness. And so for Mark, Mark has a complete breakdown, which involves screaming Bible passages at the rest of the group. It's the only time where Lydia becomes quote-unquote physically abusive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah she he's doing push-ups to show that he's not weak and she puts a foot on his back and he like kind of collapses collapses i think the reason why that that is the catalyst moment for the escape 
so it's twofold, right? It's the fact that even Mark, like, can do everything right. He can follow all the rules, but there's no guarantee that that gets you out, right? Because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, Cameron has up to this point been like, I'll play the game, right? Like, I'll sure. do what they tell me to do and I'll go home eventually. And what Mark's story makes clear is that doing what you get asked to do is no guarantee that you get to go home eventually. Mm-hmm. And then when the state comes and investigates and is basically like, well, they're feeding you. There's nothing we can do. It's like they could be there forever and there is no help. It's like they could be there till they're 18. And in fact, that's why Jane is the luckiest of them because she's about to age out of the system, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but her decision to escape with them is more about solidarity than her own freedom. Yeah. You know, Jane Fonda is such a fascinating character because we haven't addressed it. She is missing a leg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's an amputee. The result of another car accident, by the way. There's so many, so many incidents cars. with cars. And as I texted you at one point when I was reading, so much drunk driving. Like, most of the accidents the aren't 90s. even related to drunk driving. It's just so much drunk driving. It's just, we just are always drunk and we're driving. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. I don't want to say it, but it's like, welcome back to the 90s. I know. No, I know it's true. I went to a rural high school. Like, I know. But holy God, it's amazing. This to me, drunk driving is like smoking, right? It's like this thing mm-hmm. that is so stigmatized now and you can't even really imagine actual human beings doing it. And yeah. then you read something from 93 and you're like, oh, yeah. No, oh. we did it all the time. And it was not all that long time. ago. <laughs> no, not a big deal. Why are you so upset? <laughs> <laughs> But yes, Jane Fonda. So she she has lost her leg in a car accident. So she has a fake leg in which she keeps her pot. <laughs> I love that. She is also an industrious girl and she grows her own marijuana. It's ditchweed, right? Ditchweed. There we yeah. go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> which is uncultivated marijuana, Joe. I love it. <laughs> Have at it. Yes. The thing that I like the most about Jane Fonda is that she's kind of an alternative figure to... Cameron's swim girlfriend right where she is clearly an activist and she's clearly a feminist and she has a really good head on her shoulder she doesn't suffer fools but you're right yeah she she is about to age out of the system but for her that's not enough she needs to be in control of her own destiny Adam is more of the fly by the seat of your pants Let's just leave. Let's steal the car. Let's get out of here. So I like the idea that Cameron is somewhere kind of in the middle and the three of them can become this trifecta who has what it takes to survive. Yeah. No one person could get out of it. You need all three of them. I'm realizing, Joe, we haven't actually transitioned to talk about the film yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we should because I really want to talk about the difference in the ending. Okay. (laughs) Welcome to God's promise. And you are at an age where you are especially vulnerable to evil. Change will come through God, but within me. We're going to spend our time together investigating what led you here. In the past, I would resort to self-pleasure. But then when I learned that that was a sin also, I stopped. Cameron, your struggle is with the sin of same-sex attraction. You're facing the consequences of your actions, and it's ugly. Why does she give such a shit? I guess it's like having your own Disney villain. Only this one won't let you jerk off. <laughs> you don't really seem like the kind of person that'd be here. We didn't have a choice. Did you? You better be ready for the dark days. I mean, couldn't we just walk off? And go where? What's worse? Karaoke night or living on the streets? Where does my heart 
tough call. You'd rather hit the road not to look back. Are you up at college? Tell us about that girl you knew from home. The first step is for you to stop thinking of yourself as a homosexual. I don't think of myself as a homosexual. I don't really think of myself as anything. I'm tired of feeling disgusted with myself. So the miseducation of Cameron Post is from 2018. As I mentioned, it is directed and written in part by Desiree Akavan, as well as Cecilia Frugiel. It stars Chloe Grace Moretz as Cameron, John Gallagher Jr. as Reverend Rick, Sasha Lane as Jane Fonda, Forrest Goodluck as Adam Red Eagle, Marin Ireland as Bethany. I included her because she's a relatively well-known indie actress. She's Reverend Rick's girlfriend, and she teaches some of the classes, and Cameron has a bit of a schoolgirl crush on her. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the fantabulous, love her to death, Jennifer Ely as Dr. Lydia Marsh. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when she showed up, I thought, oh, yes, you have (laughs) nailed this casting in one fantastic job yeah it's it is a good cast and it's just a lovely film in many ways it's so quiet i i texted Mm -hmm. you that it reminded me of speak and i just meant that in the sense of like it's very quiet and unassuming it doesn't take the book and make fantastical leaps to make it more cinematic it's very true to the text once it gets to the point where she's at god's promise basically and Mm -hmm. like it makes so much sense to cut out the backstory I think so too. It, it's one of those things where you think, oh, but they lost so much of the richness and the depth. But I think it was the only way that you could adapt this unless you wanted to have a really long movie or some kind of mini series or something yeah. like that. And that's just not what you're doing. Like this film has a budget of $900,000. So it's indie through and through. And you know, even in a mini, like I was thinking about that, like should it have been a TV series? But even in a TV series, the hook is so far off from the beginning. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it takes so long to get to God's promise. And the reason why it works in the book is because Danforth is a really good writer, but Cameron is really compelling in those early pages. It's almost not until you get to God's promise where you're like, oh, there's way more interesting queer characters you could have been reading about. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Because I think a big strength of the book is that you're growing with Cameron as she ages, right? So you're introduced to her fairly young. I think she's six or seven. And then by the time she gets to God's promise, she's like, what, 13 or 14? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we get to know Cameron really well. And we're interested in her development. And, you know, she she keeps meeting these different types of girls who offer her different opportunities for not just relationships, but also ideas of what a quote unquote lesbian can be. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. The film has to sacrifice that so that we can just focus on the big part. And then we do get a couple of fairly substantial flashbacks that Mm -hmm. help to illuminate. But really, the idea is that Cameron's growth is what she discovers about herself when she's at God's promise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It it makes total sense. I want to fast forward and talk about the ending, Joe. (laughs) You're like, I just want to talk about this ending. All I want to talk about is the ending because... It's too strong to say I didn't like the ending. Okay. But I was unsatisfied and perhaps even a little bit unsettled by the ending of the film. 
Right. Okay. So let's clarify in case people mm-hmm. haven't watched it. So in the mm-hmm. book, yes, they walk away and they end up going to the lake where her mother escaped a tragedy as a child. And they go to the lake where that happened because it's been a huge fixture of Cameron's life. In the film, they go for a walk in the woods. They go to the highway. It's dead simple to do. And then they are last seen in the back of a pickup truck driving down the highway to destinations unknown. And hitting on a biker. And hitting on a biker. That's very amusing. I liked it a lot. I I liked that bit too. I liked the visual of the end of the film, like the three of them together and the sort Mm -hmm. of, I mean, very clear, not at all subtle visual representation of the bond they now share. Yeah. But could they have just walked away the whole time, A, and B, in the book you get all the scheming and planning and the kinds of people they're going to connect with on the outside and everybody has someone who they're going to follow up with on the outside Mm -hmm. who they think can protect them and help them, you know, transition into a next phase. Yeah, they have allies. You have none of that in the film. For expediency of plot, they don't show them plotting very much, but... Mm -hmm. Because the film is so isolated in terms of external characters generally, you don't know that there's anybody really on any of their sides from the film because you don't have any of that context. And so, yeah, the last time we see them is in this pickup truck and then on the back of this milk carton because it's like, what (laughs) are they going to do? It's actually a worrying ending. Mm -hmm. I I think it's intended to be... A little bit celebratory, but also a little bit melancholy because Mm -hmm. you realize that all they have is each other. But yeah, as people who are a little bit older who are watching this, it's, oh boy, you have no plan. You have no context. You have no money. It's going to be dead simple to track these kids also. If Mm -hmm. they just walk to the highway and hitched a ride, they're going to be able to figure out how far they could travel in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I found the end of the film didn't leave me with a bit of euphoria that they had escaped and they were going to embark on this new life. It was, okay, well, we have survived, and now what? Yeah, you're right, because I didn't even think about the money piece, but in the book, you know that um, Cameron has this cash socked away that she kind of took from her dad, her dad's stash of cash, which she's been like holding on to like, this whole time, and she's... Mm-hmm. She's got a little bit of extra cash from other places, but she comes with this. You're not supposed to bring money. She hides money all through her suitcase so that she will have some resources. Yeah. And, you know, I get that like that part isn't like kind of fun to talk about. And part of the thing about the book is that it's really long. It's like 500 pages. Yeah. There's a lot of space to expand on the details. But all of those little bits go into making the ending well, not wholly satisfying, but a lot more satisfying because you know that there is a next step. In mm-hmm. the film, there is no next step. It's a complete no. leap of faith off a cliff. Yeah, it almost seems unplanned. Like they mm-hmm. decided the day before they wake up. I will say, I think one of my absolute favorite scenes in the film. Yes. There's a lot of silences and there's a lot of long takes and yes. very little camera motion. Like you just live in a lot of these moments. And the breakfast that they had before oh they set off where Rick comes and sits down with them. And it's the kind of mundane chit chat nonsense. But you can see like if you're if you're looking at Jane Fonda, she's looking, okay, we need to get out of here. How do we get out of here without making him aware of what we're planning? And yet Cameron is sitting there saying, okay, nope, let's act normal. And so mm-hmm. like, it's such a careful delicate balance but Desiree Ackerman just sets up the camera and leaves it on these actors and lets them do their thing 
And it goes on for several minutes. And then the kids get up and leave and we just sit with Rick with the knowledge that he's going to get into so much trouble. What will this mean for the camp when they are discovered gone? And also, who cares? There's just so much packed into a couple of minutes of nearly nothing. It's also a really good example of how the film works generally because the camera angle is just a little bit odd. So you're sitting, it's not quite at the right height to be... We're a little low. You're a little low. Like you're too high to be sitting at another table, for example, Mm -hmm. and you're too low to be standing. So the view itself is just a little askew in a way that I think sets you off balance in a really productive way for watching the film, yeah. if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of those moments throughout where the camera is just still and quiet, but just a little bit off of where you might intuitively expect the view to be coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know me, I don't normally notice this kind of thing, but I felt it worked really well for always keeping you just a little bit off balance when you're in God's promise. Yeah. Which I think is really important because it would be easy to misconstrue this because it's shot really well and it's also gorgeous. Mm -hmm. The setting of where they are looks like it could be a picturesque camp. The outdoor wilderness is just stunning, Mm -hmm. especially for people who have been trapped inside their houses for more than a year now. (laughs) So there's this lushness to watching it where you think, ah, outdoors and fresh air and these kids, you know, they're having, oh no. Mm-hmm. it's almost like the film can suck you into that false oh everything's okay but the camera pulls you out of that and says no something's not right here this doesn't look right it doesn't feel right don't get sucked into what this camp is trying to do another example of that is when we see cameron go for her runs so cameron runs on the track ish it's like an overgrown mm-hmm. track in the back yeah she's a runner not a swimmer and it's important yeah. because she goes nowhere yes. she's moving but not going anywhere And when she's being filmed running, she's never centered in the shot, Mm -hmm. I noticed. She's always like either to the far left or to the far right of the shot. So you always kind of feel like she's about to get out of frame or the frame is about to move away from her, but never does. Again, Mm -hmm. just a little bit weird without being like... Yeah, no, it is artsy. It's lovely. It's well done. So yeah, I think overall, the film is doing as best it can, considering it's not able to adopt all 500 pages. Mm -hmm. But you're right, I was missing a certain emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. I don't want to blame Chloe Grace Moretz, because I think she's doing what she needs to do in this role. But Cameron is, I don't want to say she's a bland protagonist, because I sometimes do make that claim, and maybe it's unfair. (laughs) But in this case, Cameron seems less sure of who she is in the film. And as a result, it allows Adam and Jane to blossom as far more interesting people. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this is at least a structural problem because by choosing to only really show the God's promise component of the book, um, you're taking us to the part of the book where Cameron is the least interesting person in the room. And in the book, it's fine because we have like – 260 some odd pages where we've gotten to know and connect with and invest in Cameron. But in the film, that doesn't happen. So as a result, yeah, she's the least interesting one. And I found myself really craving a different perspective as a result, which is unfair because I think in many ways, these choices have been made because of exactly something you texted to me earlier in the week, which is that 
there's a level at which this is a queer story for straight people. Yeah. Cameron yeah. is she's safe, I guess. There's nothing she's about She's unassuming Cameron. in a way, right? Like she's, she's a non-threatening yeah. queer character. That's the one I was looking for, non-threatening. She's non-threatening. There's even a moment in the group therapy where there's there's a character named Dane who's very blunt and almost crude. And Kinda at one point, him. I apologize, I'm going to swear here. He turns to Cameron and he says, well, I knew you were a dyke from the moment I saw you. And I just <laughs> thought, no, sir, you did not. Absolutely because not. Because she is an unassuming, generic blonde girl. Yeah. There's nothing about her that says who she is sexually. I just thought that was funny because when I was watching the film, I thought, you know, it is a good choice because Chloe Grace Moretz goes down easy mm-hmm. to general audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like when we get these stories, particularly once they're translated to the screen, we get two choices, right? We either get, look how normal I am, <laughs> straight mm-hmm. audience, there's nothing scary about me, right. or we get the boy erased version, which is right. just like abuse and trauma porn, effectively, like created to sort of selling a story of harm Mm -hmm. perhaps with a greater good but but the Uh, harm is the point oh yeah okay i don't know i'm trying to give the tension to the doubt the harm is the point though right like we're going to the cinema to see a story about harm in that case and like i i walked out of boy erased and i was very upset with it for that purpose but also because it was very much a hey well-meaning middle to upper class probably white, probably straight, uh, probably high income individuals. Did you know that this is a thing? You should care. And I just thought, oh, is that who this movie is for? Because F you, honestly. Yeah, Yeah, fair. Totally fair. Um, Do you want to play some YA bingo? I sure do. (laughs) Bingo! Not a good bingo. You know what? I was looking at the board and I thought we were going to make more progress with this one, but I'm not so sure. Okay, I'm going to do ableism for Ruth. Ruth okay. does not know how to react to Jane Fonda's leg. She's, it's kind of hilarious. It's kind of hilarious. She's It's hilarious because Jane Fonda is rolling with it in such a fantastic way. Um, yes. And it tells us so much about Ruth. But yeah, ableism mm-hmm. for Ruth. Yeah. Um, borrow time for the sort of closed environment of the school? Okay. Maybe? I think also this idea that it's like you can either age out or you hope for the best but also there there is a ticking clock feeling yes. to yeah. cameron's like you know she's going to get caught and not just because you've read yes the back that's of the book. true that's true um road trip for both the film the escape mm-hmm. at the end but also the really world's most awkward road trip as ruth drives her to god's promise Oof. <laughs> would not want to be in that car at all no Mm-mm. Good friendships for yeah. Jane, Adam, and uh, and well, and honestly, for in many, well, no, I won't. I'll just leave it. Let me try that again. <laughs> You're going to try to argue for Aaron, but it comes to a, a screeching halt at one point. No, I was act- I was going to make a terrible argument about Coley, but I'm not going to oh, do it. Get out of town. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, good friendships for Adam and Jane, mm-hmm. and then I said nothing else after that. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to put in hollow romance for her relationship with yeah, Holly. that's good. And aged up, because they all are all aged up in the film. They're aged up to just about to graduate high school. They're not Indeed. ninth graders. Yeah, we also have Forever Young, because Chloe Grace Moretz was 21 when she filmed this movie. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Uh, I mean, she looks exactly the same yeah. every time you see her. Like, mm-hmm. when you see her in Kick-Ass, she looks the same as she does now. It's yeah. kind of hilarious. It's true. Uh, I think that's all I have. Okay. Um, I'm obviously going to add in queer secondary character. Oh, yeah. Well, queer primary character, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. It's a block. I'm going to take it. Okay. I'm going to say perfect date. And I'm stretching the concept of date liberally. If you wanted to read it in a disparaging way, you could do it for any of the dates that she has with the girls, either at the pool in the book or at the festival. Mm. Like until things go to poo, they're Mm -hmm. often some great times. But I would actually say for the friendship date, when Cameron and Adam and Jane Fonda sneak out and smoke up in the barn. Yeah. I think it's kind of the equivalent of a perfect date for these kids. I agree. I agree. And then I don't know if we can count coincidental classes or not. What are they even learning at God's Promise? What are they even doing? Okay. Yeah, that's a fair (laughs) point. So in that case, I will stick to my final one, which is an inclusion flip, because I'm pretty sure Jane Fonda is not Sasha Lane's skin color in the book. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, cool. Okay. So we almost got there. We either needed this to be filmed in Canada or we needed an inauthentic voice. No, no, definitely no inauthentic voice here. No, no. Honestly, this was enjoyable. It's a long read and a bit of a short movie, but I'm really happy to have ticked this off because I do think it's considered a bit of a contemporary classic in queer cinema. Mm -hmm. I I really enjoyed it and uh, I'm glad we did it. I really am. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So where do we go next? Oh my God, Joe. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god. Our next episode. Oh my god. It's about Love Victor. Ah! Yeah, season two. So excited. We're going to watch the whole thing. I've already watched the first two episodes. You should be watching it. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really escalated the maturity level, but Mm -hmm. not in the way that you would be worried about. Like, Mm -mm. it's still the same show, but they're not afraid of leaning into the messiness of a lot of the conflict. Yeah, and it's really found its emotional legs for all the characters. It's doing a better job of giving the supporting characters um, a real emotional world. It's done Mm -hmm. a much better job with Victor's sister this time around. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. just all across the board, the show has deepened and it's figured itself out. I'm so excited to talk about it more. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be no shortage of things to talk about that one. And then our next uh, full-length pick... So our next pick is Fire Song by Adam Garnett Jones, uh, the film and the book. And Joe, mm-hmm. did the film come before the book here? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that I've actually seen this film, so I don't think it is. I think it was just in production for a very long time. Oh, okay. That's really interesting because I was the dates were confusing me. But I'm excited to talk about it. It's an Indigenous queer text, which I think is fantastic because June is Pride, Joe, but June is also Indigenous Persons Month. Yeah, and that actually segues well into our next book club, which is technically dropping on the first week of July, but we're obviously all going to be reading it because, folks, you are reading along with us. And Brenna, what are we reading? Sherry Dimeline's The Marrow Thieves, finally! We got tired Uh, of waiting for you, CBC. We're just doing (laughs) it on our own. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. We've got a couple of weeks of really interesting, some complicated texts, lots of things to talk about. Like so excited. It's just, ah, this has been a great programming time. I'm really enjoying myself. 
<laughs> so if folks want to get a hold of you, Joe, because they want to take to task your perceptions of, oh, geez, I don't know, fundamentalist Christianity, where do they find you? Uh, you can go to the trash bin if that's what you want to talk to me about. <laughs> no, you can reach me at B still on my remote and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A, and you can get us both on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod, or for anything longer, you can email us HKHSPod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've got good stuff to watch, we've got good stuff to read, we just got to go and do it. So yeah. until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.